Hello, and welcome to the Phantasms of the Living podcast. I'm your host, the paranormal author and musician, Simon Thought, coming to you from New England, USA. If you've not joined me before, this series covers case studies from the seminal two-volume massive work known as Phantasms of the Living, published in 1886 by the Society for Psychical Research in England. The society was made up of both skeptics and believers in the paranormal and conducted research into various areas in an attempt to prove whether such phenomena were real or not. In the parlance of the society, a phantasm was their term for a paranormal event. In the book, the author explored about 700 case studies of such events, ranging from sightings of ghosts, premonitions of future events, telepathy, and more. They and their team from the society then performed research to determine whether there was any truth to the story being told and whether they were corroborated by real events. This podcast will read those case studies and the results of the society's research into them, and then discuss them. This episode comes from Chapter 18 of Volume 2, which is entitled Collective Cases, meaning cases of paranormal events which appear to more than one person at a time. This is a situation where the author of this chapter shows a skepticism before even reaching the case studies. The introduction to the chapter says, in part, Of course, the first few which is suggested by the fact that two or more people have seen or heard the same thing at the same time is that the sight or sound, however abnormal and unaccountable, was due to some objective reality within the range of their sense organs. In other words, that it was not a hallucination at all. Hence, those apparently telepathic instances where a sensory experience representative of some absent person has been shared by more than one percipient would imply the immediate presence of some sort of physical wraith or at any rate of an objective human presence. I scarcely know how far the idea of a literal wraith is seriously entertained by any educated person in the present day. Gaseous and vaporous ghosts are, I imagine, quite at a discount but the word ether seems sometimes to be used as a way out of the difficulty. As to the notion of an objective presence which may affect the perceptive faculty of several persons without producing changes in the external world, one sort of case is conceivable which would no doubt favor it, e.g., if two persons, situated at some distance from one another, saw the appearance in the respective relations of distance and posture which a real object of the same kind would bear to them, one of them, it might be, seeing a full face and the other a profile. But I know of no examples of this sort. And as a mere theory, the notion in question may be left with a single general comment. For though our path skirts, it had better not enter the metaphysical labyrinth suggested by the words objective reality. A wraith is another word for ghost, particularly one seen right before or after someone's death. Wraiths being at a discount is a snarky way of saying that most people do not believe that ghosts exist. The society, being made up of both skeptics and believers in the paranormal, actually ended up in a schism over this dichotomy, which included the resignation of Sherlock Holmes author Arthur Conan Doyle from the society, but we can discuss all that in a later episode. As Phantasms of the Living has three authors, It's interesting to see how some chapters are clearly written by adherents to paranormal ideas, while others are scripted by skeptics. Who wrote which chapter would be something to find out. Our case studies today, being cases number 310 and 311, deal with events experienced by more than one person. I want to give my usual warning that, being written in the 19th century, 
Phantasms of the Living has the flowery, formal language one would expect from that era. However, I think it makes the stories more stately in their Victorian splendor. In a perfect world, the case studies would be told with a British accent, but I will not offend your senses by attempting that. You'll have to bear with my American voice. Let's read our first case study of today, which is case number 310, the story of a joint auditory hallucination which takes place in India with a number of characters. I should note that some of the case studies take place among British colonists in India. Discussing these case studies in no way should be taken as perpetuation of 19th century English colonialism. This next case is a waking and sensory example of the same kind. It was first obtained in writing from Mrs. Fagan of Bovey Tracy, Newton Abbott, the mother of one of the recipients, and her account exemplifies the inaccuracies which secondhand evidence may sometimes introduce without really affecting the case in any vital point. 1883, Case 310. While the Reverend C.C.T. Fagan, Mrs. Fagan's son, then chaplain of Seal Coat, India, was dressing for dinner on Christmas Day evening, 1876. His cousin Christopher Fagan, being similarly employed in an adjacent room, both heard the name Fagan called. The Reverend C.C.T. Fagan, though thinking it strange his cousin should thus address him, yet knowing no one else was in the house, went to him asking what he wanted, why he had not called him Charlie as usual, and remarking that the voice was like that of Captain Clayton, a cavalry officer who had been under his pastoral charge, but was then at a distant station. His cousin replied that he too had heard the voice, and probably it was that of Major Collins, whom they were expecting for dinner. Upon this, they adjourned to the drawing room, where they found the major, but as he had only just come in, he had neither called nor heard the voice. While telling him of what had occurred, they all three heard the same voice repeat the same name, and Major Collins remarked, it is like Clayton's voice. The next morning a telegram was received to the effect that Captain Clayton died at that hour from an accident received while playing at polo. Major Collis told our friend, the Reverend A.T. Fryer of Clerkenwell, that Mr. Fagan and his cousin were standing in the doorway of the drawing room talking when they heard the call, Fagan. He himself was dressing in his room, and they called out to him to know what he wanted, but he had not spoken, nor had he heard the call. Whilst they were talking together, the voice came a second time, and all three heard it. On being applied to with regard to the discrepancy between these two accounts, the Reverend C.C.T. Fagan writes, Siddhapur, August 25, 1883. So far as my memory serves, the statement of Major Collis is correct as to the curious coincidence of which he has told you. He was certainly staying in my house at the time, and was not a guest merely invited to dinner, as my cousin was. I cannot say who suggested the voice sounded like that of Captain Clayton. C.C.T. Fagan. Mr. Fagan says, however, in another letter, I am under the impression that my cousin did not hear the voice. He adds, At or about the time in question, and on one or more occasion, I have imagined that I heard people calling me, but I may add this experience is now seldom or ever happening to me. Major Collis writes to us on August 2nd, 1884, 3. Barton Terrace, Dawlish. In reply to the questions you ask, I have never had experience of any other auditory hallucination. Neither have I had any hallucination of the senses whatever. G. Collis. Mr. Fagan's cousin, Lieutenant G. Forbes Fagan of the 10th Lancers, writes to us, Simla, 
July 31, 1885. I remember that on the afternoon of the day on which Captain Clayton met his death, I was in the Reverend C. Fagan's house at Sealcote, and he said he had heard his mother's voice calling to him and that anything was sure to happen. I heard in a voice myself. When news arrived of Captain Clayton's death, my cousin said the voice must have had some connection with it. G.F. Fagan. In an interview with Mrs. Fagan, Professor Sidgwick learned that Captain Clayton was intimate with the Reverend C.C.T. Fagan and also knew Major Collis. The Calcutta Englishman of December 28th contains a telegram of December 26th. Last evening, Captain Clayton, extra aide-de-camp to the Viceroy, was thrown while playing polo and died during the night. In answer to a question as to the hour of the accident, Major Lord William Beresford writes to us, As well as I remember, it was 6.15 in the evening of Christmas Day, 1876, and he died in my arms exactly as the clock struck twelve. He never spoke after he fell. The somewhat ragged form in which this evidence is presented is due to the fact that the Reverend C.C.T. Fagan and Major Collis are understood to dislike the subject, and that we have scrupled to press them. But it seems quite certain that at a time closely corresponding to that of the accident, two percipients, one of whom has never had any other hallucination, heard a voice which belonged to no one in their vicinity. As to the immediate connection of the voice with Captain Clayton, the evidence is not so clear. But as regards to Lieutenant Fagan's recollections, we cannot but remark the extreme unlikelihood that the two hearers should imagine Mrs. Fagan's voice as calling her son by his surname, and also the unlikelihood that, if it was her voice that her son recognized, he should have altered this interesting point in the account which he gave her. The case is, of course, to some extent weakened by the fact that the Reverend C.C.T. Fagan has had other auditory hallucinations. It is worth adding, however, that one of these experiences, when he heard his mother's voice urgently calling him, proved to have coincided with a very sudden and exceptional longing for his presence on her part, and it may possibly have been the mention of this fact which caused a confusion in Lieutenant Fagan's memory and led him to associate Mrs. Fagan with the present experience. Despite the belief from this chapter's author, having paranormal events be experienced by more than one person lends a lot of credibility to them. One person may lie, but two people, especially the characters described in this case study, some of whom had to have the story pulled out of them, are unlikely to be working together to create some grand hoax. Even the author had to admit that the small discrepancies in the stories did not render the entire event untrue. Is the moral of this case study that close bonds between people can lead to psychic connections at the time of death? Is it that all of us are really one consciousness? Is it that British soldiers should not have been playing polo in India? What do you think? It really is easy to start your own podcast. It's an inexpensive and fun way to expand your reach and provide opinions and interests to others. Buzzsprout is the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Following the link in this show's notes lets Buzzsprout know we sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, and helps support our show. We use Buzzsprout, and I can say it took no time at all to get this podcast out to you. I could not have done it without Buzzsprout's help. Podcasting isn't hard. You just have to know who to work with.
Get out there and get talking now. Our second case study is case 311, which involves hypnosis and a bluish-white glow. Mrs. John Evans of Old Bank Enniskillen narrates as follows. December 4, 1885, case number 311. With regard to the apparition or optical illusion, I have a perfect and clear remembrance. It occurred after the experience related, i.e., after a cataleptic fit produced under hypnotic influence. The operator had left me with an earnest request to my husband to send for or fetch him, should anything seem to require it. I was wide awake and enjoying the freedom from pain, my room being carefully darkened. The operator had, while with me, been seated on a chair midway between my bed and a chest of drawers, about three feet from each. I was thinking very gratefully of the relief I had experienced when I noticed a bluish-white light round the chair. It seemed to be flickering and darting in a large oval, but gradually concentrated on a figure seated on the chair. The appearance did not startle me in the least. My first thought was, it is Mr. T, a young officer with whom we were very intimate, and who had been in the house that evening. But the expression of the mouth struck me then, and I thought, can it be Mr. D, a dear friend who had died some little time before? All this time the face seemed to be changing, and as it were, settling. Suddenly it flashed into my mind, it is Mr. B, the father of the operator. I did not know this gentleman at all except from having seen his photograph, but had no doubt on the subject. Curiously enough, his mouth and that of Mr. D's were singularly alike in expression. The figure sat in a kind of dim halo. I felt no surprise, nor did I speak to it, but thought, Oh, you've come to find P, the son. He has been here all the evening, but has gone home now. As I thought this, the halo gradually diffused itself, as it had before become concentrated, and the figure vanished. Besides the distinctiveness of feature, a movement of crossing and uncrossing the knees two or three times struck me. That same night, and it must have been nearly at the same time, the friend who had magnetized me was awoke by hearing his name called twice. His impression was that I needed his aid, and he was preparing to come, he was living a mile off, if he heard the call repeated, but it was not. The next day, when I saw him, without telling him any of this, I asked, has your father any noticeable habit or trick of movement? At first he said no, and then, unless you would describe as such a way he has of frequently crossing and uncrossing his knees, he has varicose veins and is restless at times. This was the whole matter. The father, who dislikes such subjects, would never say whether he had dreamed or been thinking intently of his son, but probably it was so. Agnes Evans In a letter dated 18th December, 1885, Mrs. Evans writes that she thinks the occurrence took place in September or October 1881. She has never experienced any other visual hallucination. In answer to inquiries, she adds, 1. I cannot be sure as to the time at which I saw the appearance, but, putting circumstances together, I should think between 12 and 1 o'clock, nearer the latter hour. 2. I'm perfectly certain that I uttered no sound. The phantom's disappearance seemed to answer to the thought that passed through my mind. You want Preston. He has been here all the evening, but went back to Fort Torches some time since. 3. I had not any wish for his presence. I was lying in quiet enjoyment of the relief from agonizing pain and quivering nerves, in which condition one has no active line of thought. 
I was very likely thought about him, with a lazy kind of gratitude to him as the author of the relief I was experiencing. Captain Battersby, R.A.F.R.A.S., of Ordnance House, Enniskillen, son-in-law of Mrs. Evans, writes, December 21, 1885. I had mesmerized Mrs. E. for several months for severe neuralgia, with the view of affording her natural sleep. One night she had been in a mesmeric trance and had been awoke by me, and I had returned to barracks, situated about half a mile from her house, leaving her in her room. I went to bed and to sleep, and was awakened with a start by hearing my name called very distinctly. I sat up in bed and looked for a caller, but saw no one. It was too dark to look at my watch, so that I cannot say what time it may have been. It occurred to me at the time that Mrs. E. might want me for something. I did not recognize the voice, and indeed had no chance of doing so, as it did not call again. In the morning I went to see Mrs. E. in order to find out whether she had any unusual experience. She asked me if anything had happened to me the night before. I said yes, and asked her why she put the question. She said, Has your father a habit of moving one leg over the other now and then in a restless way? This was the case. She then said about 1 a.m. she had been roused from sleep and saw a phosphorescent appearance on the chair near her bed, which resolved itself into a human figure, recognized by her as my father from a photograph in my possession. It did not speak, but seemed to ask her mentally, Where is Preston? To which she responded, also mentally, He was here, but has gone home. Whereupon the figure disappeared. I was somewhat alarmed at the occurrence and wrote to ask if my father was well. He was so, and did not remember having any dream of me on that night. Mrs. E. particularly remarked his habit of crossing first one leg and then the other, of which I had not previously told her. T. Preston Battersby. In answer to inquiries, Captain Battersby says, I beg to say that at no time, except on the occasion referred to by me in my previous letter, have I woke from sleep with the impression of having been called. In fact, this was the only occasion in my life in which I had heard or saw anything unusual. The collective character of these two experiences is clearly very doubtful. They may not have been due to any agency on part of Captain Battersby's father or connected with each other, but considering that the accidental coincidence of these two unique experiences would be most improbable, and that a hypnotic rapport probably existed between Captain Battersby and his patient, it's a reasonable supposition that his mind was either the source or the channel of a telepathic communication to hers. The author poses the question as to whether Captain Battersby somehow implanted this hallucination in Miss Evans' mind during their hypnosis session. This could explain why both heard the same thing, or at least why Mrs. Evans could hear the voice of Captain Battersby's father, who she'd never met. Still, it would not explain the apparition that she saw. I was not aware the British military had hypnosis training, but I suppose it came in handy here. It sure helped Mrs. Evans' neuralgia. It certainly also produced a psychic response, but I'm not sure how therapeutic that was. It could have been telepathy, as the author suggested. It's interesting that the subject of the vision, being Captain Battersby's father, was not involved in this at all, not even in a dream state. As that was the case, how did his image appear to Mrs. Evans, especially as she had only ever seen him in a photograph? Captain Battersby did not intentionally try to project his father's image to Mrs. Evans. In fact, the entire event came as a surprise to him. 
The captain's reaction to Mrs. Evans' story was that something might have happened to his father, which led him to write to his father to ask how he was. Why would Mrs. Evans' story make him have that reaction? In episode one, we discussed two case studies in which apparitions appeared to people at the time of someone's death. Assuming that Captain Battersby was unaware of those stories, why would his father's health be his first concern? These case studies, along with many of the others, raise a number of questions. Whether they're proof of the paranormal or evidence of some type of unconscious human connection is still open to interpretation even over 130 years later. We now come to the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Simon Thought, and I wrote and produced it, other than the parts read from Phantasms of the Living itself, of course. Our theme song is called The Salad Bar and was performed by my band Simon Thought and the Uploads. It's available on the usual music streaming platforms if you are so inclined. Any comments from listeners about what you think these case studies mean would be appreciated. You can also tell me your story of phantasms you've experienced. I may read what you send on a future episode. You never know. I can be reached by email at simonthoughtintheuploads at gmail.com. I will review and discuss further case studies from Phantasms of the Living in future episodes, and I hope you'll join me then. Thank you for listening, and be vigilant. You never know when a phantasm will occur, so keep an eye out. Be well, and goodbye.